All right, open your Bibles up to Revelation chapter 2. If you're using one of our uh, Black CSB Bibles, it's on page 1089. Uh, And again, if you don't have a Bible of your own, that's why we have these, so that you can use it here, but then take it home and use it throughout the week. There's a little half sheet in there that helps give you some instructions on how to get the most out of reading that Bible. And I want to encourage you to, to just take that and keep that, okay? If you don't have one or you need one or you want one in this translation that we've been using as we preach through on Sunday mornings. Um, if you're joining us for the first time today if you, or if you've missed the past couple of Sundays, we're in week three of a sermon series that's going to take us through the book of Revelation. And one of the things that we discovered a couple weeks ago in chapter one is that Jesus promises blessing for those who listen to the words written in this book and obey them. I don't know if you like to memorize scripture or not, but as we're going through Revelation, a good uh, scripture verse to memorize is chapter one, verse three, okay? Uh, where he says this, talks about, blessed is the one who reads these words aloud and blessed are those who, uh, who hear these words and, uh, of, the, uh, the, of this book of prophecy and keep them, aka obey them, because the time is near. It's a good reminder for us that there's urgency here, but there's also blessing here, right? And so I want to encourage you um, to to keep that in mind, maybe memorize that as we're going through. For the next two Sundays, we're going to sit here and read somebody else's mail. I don't recommend that like in actual real life. I think that's a felony, but... um, but we've been given this opportunity. The, the, the envelope is already open for us, if you will, right? Chapters 2 and 3 cover the, what, what uh, we call the letters to the seven churches. We're going to look at the first four of those letters in chapter 2 today, and we're going to look at the other three letters next week. A couple of weeks ago, we saw in the, that the book of Revelation itself as a whole is an apocalyptic, prophetic letter to these seven churches And it would have been circulated among them, starting in Ephesus and making its way through. And and we'll see that as we go through each church. I I meant to uh, print out a a map this week and hand that out. I'll I'll do that next week that shows where these churches are at. uh, So we can see these are real places. And this was a letter that was circulated. So this means that even though each church was addressed specifically and directly here by Jesus in chapters 2 and 3, they also got to read each other's mail right? When he got to Ephesus, he wouldn't just stop at Ephesus. He would read the rest of the whole letter of Revelation to them, right? So they would each get to hear uh, what Jesus had to say to the others, and they would be blessed not only by listening and obeying all of the words that Jesus spoke specifically to each one of them as individual churches, but to all of them as a whole. You remember the number seven is used symbolically often in Revelation to speak of completeness. So when Jesus writes to this, or John writes to the seven churches on Jesus's behalf, yes, these are specific places, actual churches in the first century, but, but there's a greater purpose here of speaking to Christ's church as a whole throughout all of the centuries until he returns. And so as one of Jesus' churches today, we can find blessing in these words as well. We're not just reading somebody else's mail, if you will. There's, there's some things in here that we want to pay attention to and take to heart ourselves. That is, if we are willing to listen and obey what Jesus has to say, that's where blessing is found. And so because this is the word of God uh, and, and Christ himself, I want to pray and ask for him. Uh, to help us listen. Father, 
Thank you for your word that's unchanging and eternal, that is full of grace and truth because your son is full of grace and truth. We pray this morning that the living word would, uh, we would hear him through your written word by the spirit who, who uh, speaks it to us, puts it deep in our hearts, and empowers us to listen to what we hear, to take it to heart and to obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Got your ears on? This is a, uh, a, a saying, a quote that my friend used to say to me whenever we would open up uh, scripture together. We're getting ready to. He'd be like, hey, got your ears on? It, it was his way of saying, uh, of remembering the importance of not just reading the words on the page. You ever done a, a, a daily reading plan and you're like, you read for like a, you know, however long, and then you check the box that, that says that reading thing for the day, and you're like, what did I just read? Right? This is his way of saying, hey, pay attention to what you're reading. Got your ears on. Listen, right? This is uh, something that Jesus used often in the Gospels. We, we read that during our prayer time this morning from Matthew chapter 7. He says, let anyone who has ears to hear listen. In other words, put your ears on, Right? The problem is, though, that when we hear things in Scripture or really anywhere else that we don't like or that hit a little too close to home, that get a little personal for us, we often let those things go in one ear and out the other without ever letting them make their way into our hearts. We have ears to hear, right? They're there, but we're unwilling to actually listen. Now, I don't know anybody that really, like, is a glutton for this kind of stuff, that loves to hear hard truth, especially the more personal that truth gets. Why? Because it exposes our sins, our weaknesses, our failures. It, it, it opens us up to, to be vulnerable before other people. But if it's going to come from somebody, wouldn't you want it to come from Jesus? Right? Like if there's one person that could actually say what we need to hear in a way that we need to hear it, and we could receive that as love and, and let our defenses down and just receive that. Wouldn't that be Jesus? That's what he's going to do for us and for these churches. And so here's what we're going we're gonna to get, okay? We're, this is sort of a two-part uh, little mini-series, if you will, in the, in the midst of our series through Revelation. Because we're going to look at the letters to the seven churches, four of them this week, three of them next week. And, and so really this is kind of a two-part message spread out over two Sundays, and here's the main point. This is what we're going to see over and over and over again as we read these letters to the churches. Jesus knows what his church needs in order to conquer, for the church to conquer. So we should listen to him when he speaks to us, even when what he has to say is hard to hear. Jesus knows what his church needs in order for the church to conquer, so we should listen to him when he speaks to us, even when... What he has to say is hard for us to hear. Now, there's a noticeable pattern that we'll see as we look at each of the letters to the seven churches. First, Jesus addresses each church by name through their representative angel. Last week, we talked about that word, the, the angel, how it could also mean messenger, and some take that to mean uh, the, the earthly pastor of the church. But most of the time throughout Revelation, when that word is used, it's speaking of a heavenly being. One commentator suggests that Jesus addresses the churches through their heavenly representative, the angel, to, to remind them of their heavenly reality. 
That's a big theme in Revelation. It's going to pull back the curtain and show the heavenly perspective on the earthly reality so that we can actually endure to the end of this life and make it to life eternal with Christ, okay? And so uh, Jesus is, is uh, addressing these churches through their heavenly representative, not only to remind them of their already existence in heaven, but also to remind them that they have spiritual help, okay? Because he's going to tell them that they need help. He's going to tell them that they need help. After his initial address then to these churches, Jesus identifies himself in a way that is relevant to each church's situation. And those, those ways will be familiar to us because we read those things last week, how John described Jesus when he got this vision of the resurrected and exalted Christ. And then he gives a, a personal evaluation of each church each time, beginning with this phrase, I know, I know. And next, he'll either encourage the faithful to continue in endurance, or he will warn the unfaithful with the threat of judgment. Sometimes he does both. And then he finishes with this tailor-made promise of eternal life with him to the one who conquers. And then with this refrain of exhortation, we'll hear this every time. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Got your ears on. Okay. Now that anyone is not just talking about the other seven churches that get this circular letter, that anyone also includes you and me. You see, we're not just reading someone else's mail this morning and next week. We're hearing Jesus's words of encouragement and exhortation, yes, to specific churches, but also to the church as a whole, his body, the one he cares for and loves, the one he died for and, and has promised to purify and bring to himself in the end of all things. These words weren't written to us, but they were written for us, just like every other book of the Bible. The temptation for each of us, though, as we hear these words this morning and next week especially, is to, to assume that they don't actually really apply to us. That these are words just only for these seven churches in the first century, or these words are for the person that you really want to elbow next to you to make sure that they are listening and have their ears on. But if we're willing to let Jesus' words to these churches evaluate our own hearts, you know that's what happens when we read the word of God. It actually reads us. It's a mirror that shows us for what and who we really are but also reveals Christ for who he really is. And if we're willing to let the word of God do that, if we humbly receive these words of Jesus, even though they may be difficult to hear, then, then we will experience the blessing, this promised blessing of growing in hope-filled, Christ-like endurance together as one of Christ's churches in the 21st century. So, you got your ears on? Then we're going to dig in together. We're going to start with the letter to the church in Ephesus. And you can watch for the pattern that I just described. Revelation chapter 2. We're going to go 1 through 7. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance. And that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who, have, who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be liars. That's not the musical instrument. That's the one who doesn't speak the truth, right? 
You, you found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, we should be familiar with the church in Ephesus. That name should sound familiar to us. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the Ephesians, and that's been preserved for us in the New Testament. We went through that together a couple years ago. Acts chapter 20 tells us that Paul spent three years there teaching them the word of God and warning them through tears to be alert, to be on guard uh, against false teachers who would come in and try to distort the truth. And as a result, the church in Ephesus was really strong in their doctrine, really strong in, in, in what the, the, the teachings of the church of Scripture was and is. Let's look at how, how does Jesus identify himself to this church? As the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now remember at the end of chapter one, we're told that the seven stars represent the seven angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands uh, represent the seven churches themselves. Jesus is holding the stars. He's walking among the lampstands. He's emphasizing, not doctrine here, he's emphasizing relationships. He's emphasizing his intimate, close, personal relationship with this church. Remember how God walked among the garden that had the tree of life in it with Adam and Eve before they sinned? Jesus walks among the lampstands. Just as a quick side note, every time Jesus identifies himself uniquely to each church, he begins with the, this phrase, thus says and then describes himself. This is an allusion to the language that the Old Testament prophets used whenever they were relaying a message from God. Thus says the Lord, or thus saith the Lord, right? For all you KJVers out there. So while Jesus describes himself here in a particular way that's, revelant, uh, revelant, that's, that's relevant to each church, he's also reminding them that all of the words that they're hearing are coming from God himself. Jesus, the one who walks among the churches, lampstands, is God. We, we saw this in John's gospel. He is God incarnate. He's the living word of God. What he says, God says. That's important for us to remember, okay? And it's important because it means that whatever Jesus says about each church here is 100% true and accurate. You ever had a first impression about someone and then been wrong? Jesus never is wrong about his impression of his church or anyone else. Crystal clear accuracy. Next comes Jesus' evaluation of the Ephesian church. He, this is the I know Heart, right? He commends them for their ability to discern between uh, true and false teaching and for their endurance in guarding the doctrinal purity of the church, even while suffering hardships because of their efforts. 
They called out a lot of false teachers in their day, including the Nicolaitans, who we'll, who we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about in, uh, when we get to the church at Pergamum in a, in a little bit. But now it's Jesus' turn to call out the Ephesians on something. And in verse 4, he says, I have this against you. Can you imagine hearing that from the Lord? Hey, you're doing great. Keep going here. But I have this against you. This is hard to hear right here. This is a truth that's going to expose something that the, that the church is lacking in, that's weak in, that's sinning in. He says, you've abandoned the love that you had at first. The one who walks among the lampstands. You, you've, you've abandoned the love that you had at first. Paul ended his letter to the Ephesians by saying this. This is the last verse in Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 24. Grace be with all, with all who have undying love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Here Jesus makes it clear that he knows that their love for him is in danger of dying off. In their efforts to guard the doctrinal purity of the church, they seem to have, have uh, uh, come to love the truth of the gospel more than the Christ uh, uh, of the gospel. That, that the truth points to, the one who actually is the truth. I don't know about you, but, but I've noticed in my own life times where, where I've, I've shared the gospel with people, but I haven't really actually pointed them to Jesus himself. He's the point. He's the purpose. We don't just introduce them to a, a, a series of truths and realities. We introduce them to the person and work of God in Jesus Christ. There's a relationship there that comes from telling the truth. Their love for doctrine is surpassing their love for Jesus, and it's causing them to live more like Pharisees than like Christians. The Ephesian church is turning inward to protect the gospel, and in doing so, they're actually failing to go outward with the gospel and use it as a light in a darkened world and a witness to the nations, to the lost. It was the high priest's job to tend to the lamps that were in the temple to the lampstands. He would trim their wicks. He would fill those uh, lamps with oil in order to keep their light burning brightly. Jesus is the great high priest, right? Hebrews tells us this. He tends to his church by telling them to repent, to turn around, to go the other way, to remember the love that they had at first and so that they will do the works that they did at first. Why? Because our works that we have been given to do by God, which Ephesians 2.10 tells us, right? We've been created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Those works come from salvation, not for salvation. They're a response of love to the person of Jesus. That's what that obedience is. That's what those works are. You can't do the works that you did at first if you don't have the love that you did at first. This is what Jesus is telling them. Your works are about to become empty because your love is empty. Love for Christ compels us to love others and love for others compels us to help them see Christ himself and his love through the truth and grace-filled message of the gospel. If the Ephesians refuse to repent, then Jesus will come to them and remove their lampstand from his place. I'm done trimming the wicks, guys. 
Unless they fan the flame of their love for him, he'll snuff out the light of their gospel witness in the world. Did you know like it's, well, in, in Galatians chapter five, Paul tells the Galatian church who's gone that way. They, 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 they set aside the gospel for something else and, and their love for Christ is, is set aside as well. And now they love the, the law again. And he tells them, listen, you're out of step with the Spirit. You keep in step with the Spirit. That's how we fan the flame of our love for him. We submit to the Spirit. We keep in step with the Spirit. We continue to let this truth pierce our own hearts to, to stoke that love for Christ. But Jesus promised them that to the one who conquers, he will give the right to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Those who conquer, we'll see this word over and over in John. John has used this in in, uh, Revelation. He's used this in in his gospel. He uses it in his letters. It's this this victory through endurance. This, This is what it means to conquer in this book. In Ephesians, Paul talks about to stand firm, right? Putting on the armor of God. This is what it means to conquer. And in this case, to conquer is those, those who endure to the end and don't compromise with the world or walk away from Jesus. Those who don't leave their first love. To those, Jesus says, they will gain full, unhindered access to the love of their life. They'll get to walk among the trees of eternal paradise, including the tree of life with the one who walks among the lampstands now. They'll get to eat from the tree of life. It won't be barred from, they won't be barred from that anymore because Jesus has kept them pure. In verse seven, Jesus tells us to put our ears on. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So let's ask, what what might it look like for us then to listen and obey here in order to receive the blessing that Jesus promised at the, at the beginning of the book in, in verse three of chapter one. And even here as to those who conquer. Here are a few questions that might be helpful for us to ask of ourselves. Do I love proving others wrong more than I love pointing them to Jesus? Is my gospel witness to others all truth and no grace? Am I so focused on exposing and rejecting false teachers that I'm missing out on experiencing and remaining in Christ's love? Remember John 15? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Remain in me. Remain in my love. If you haven't answered yes to any of these questions, then Christ is calling you this morning to repent along with the church at Ephesus. Don't let your love for doctrine eclipse your love for Christ himself. Return to your first love and do the works that you did at first until you're eating from the tree of life with the love of your life. Let's keep going on to the church in Smyrna, verses eight through 11. Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna, thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life, I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw, you, throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give to you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches 
the one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. Now, how does Jesus introduce himself, identify himself to this church as the first and the last and as the one who was dead and came to life? Now, as our great high priest, Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he's been tempted in every way and yet he was endure, he endured without sin. He's actually gone farther than we ever have in his fight against temptation. And so in describing himself here as the one who was dead and came to life, he's reminding the church in Smyrna of his high priestly care for them. He can sympathize with their situation. He knows all about it. What does he say? I know your affliction and your poverty. I know how others are slandering you. This church is spiritually rich, but they're financially poor. None of the unbelievers in the city of Smyrna wanted anything to do with them because of their association with Jesus. And add on top of that the slander from the Jews. And it was virtually impossible then for the people in this church to find any work in the community because of their tainted reputation. They're poor. They can't even have it, get a job. Jesus calls these slandering Jews a synagogue of Satan, and he said something similar back in chapter 8 of John's gospel, if you remember, when he told those self-righteous Jews who were persecuting him that they were of their father, the devil, right? You do the works of your father. Here he's reminding the church at Smyrna that, that, that the affliction that they're facing is not merely man-made, it's spiritual. They have an actual spiritual enemy. Jesus doesn't have anything to say against this church. Did you, did you know? There was no, I have this against you. But the devil has something against them. And Jesus still has some hard words for them that they still need to hear. And we find those words in verse 10. In the same way that he didn't tell John in chapter 1, hey, don't be afraid. I've come to get you off this island of exile. He never said that to John, Right? In the same way, he doesn't tell them here, hey, don't be afraid, I've come to ease your suffering. Don't be afraid, I've come to end it all together. But he does say, don't be afraid, right? Even though they've already endured suffering for the sake of Christ, he tells them here that, that they will need to endure more of it. Hey, actually, I've, I've come to tell you that, that this is going to continue and actually increase. And while the devil is the one that will afflict them, God is the one who will use it for his divine purposes of testing them, refining them. And he is ultimately the one in control of how long their affliction will last. He's not turning a blind eye here. He's not out of control here. Remember, this is an apocalyptic liter uh, literature. It's a letter, apocalyptic prophetic letter that deals heavily in symbolic pictures and numbers, just like the number seven, the number 10 also speaks of completion, uh, and, and this number here, these 10 days here, they're not necessarily literal, but they're most likely an allusion to Daniel chapter 1, where Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were tested for 10 days while they refused to defile themselves with food or drink from the king of Babylon because those things were used to sacrifice uh, as sacrifices to idols. These, these men who were in exile in Babylon had to stand firm and not give in to compromise. 
and they were tested. By telling the church in Smyrna that they will experience affliction for 10 days, Jesus is telling them, hey, I want you to follow the example of Daniel and his friends and resist the idolatrous practices that are taking place around you. And then he tells them these difficult words, be faithful even to the point of death. Be faithful even to the point of death. Now, it might cost them their lives to follow Jesus, but Jesus is reminding them here, he's the first and the last. He's the one who was dead and has come to life. He's the one who has ultimate control even over death. And so even though they may receive the death sentence from men because of their faithfulness to Jesus, they would ultimately receive the crown of life from Jesus because of his faithfulness to them. Now, this promise is true for anyone who has ears to hear and listens to what the Spirit says to the churches. Those who conquer, that is, those who endure affliction, even to the point of death, they will never be harmed by the second death. You know what that means? That means that that they don't have to be afraid of God's eternal judgment because Christ already died under that judgment on their behalf, and he came to life again in order to give eternal life to all who entrust themselves to him now during their earthly lives. So again, what might it look like for us to put our ears on here, to listen and obey Christ's words so that we can receive the blessing that Jesus promises? Well, maybe we need to start by honestly admitting how much we're actually willing to suffer for the sake of Christ or unwilling Maybe we need to adjust our mindset so that we come to expect affliction instead of spending all our efforts trying to make ourselves exempt from it. Maybe we need to focus more often on the reality that Christ died. That really happened. And he really came back to life. Otherwise, we have no reason to be here, right? He died and he came back to life. And when we focus on that reality then perhaps we can trust him more to calm our fear of death. That's what Hebrews tells us. He came to to destroy the fear of death by destroying the one who holds the power over death. Maybe we need to trust that Jesus, even though he might not um, remove us from it, will keep us through it. Help us persevere Maybe we need to learn to love eternal life more than we love our earthly lives. How do you need to let Jesus' words here strengthen your endurance, even if that endurance requires going to the point of death? Look at the church of, in Pergamum, verses 12 through 17. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum, <coughs> excuse me, thus says the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you were holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there that hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught uh, Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him, give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name uh, is inscribed that no one knows except for the one who 
receives it. How does Jesus identify himself to this church? As the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. Last week we saw that the double-edged sword is a picture of God's ability to judge the motives and intentions of the human heart. To both comfort and convict. To, to, to proclaim both salvation and judgment. Jesus uses both edges of that sword here with the church in Pergamum. He says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Now, Pergamum was the central hub and the leading city for the worship of uh, a number of Greco-Roman gods and other cult practices. It was the first city to build a temple for the purpose of worshiping the Roman emperor, and it was the central city for worshiping the Greco-Roman god of healing, whose symbol happened to be a serpent wrapped around a staff. There's also a large hill behind the city that was the site of several pagan temples, and one of those temples was shaped like a throne and was dedicated to the Greek god Zeus, who was known as the father of the gods. All of that helps us understand, and and we can see, it's not difficult for us to see why Jesus refers to this as the place where Satan's throne is, right? Jesus commends the church in Pergamum for their faithfulness to worship him in spite of the pressure to worship so many other false gods, and he points out Antipas in, in particular because he was faithful to the point of death. Remember what he just said to the church in Smyrna? He just gave us an example in Antipas. These are words of encouragement from the one holding the double-edged sword, but that sword cuts both ways. And Jesus also has a few things against some of those who are being unfaithful in this church in Pergamum. In Numbers 22, Balaam was hired by Balak, the king of Moab, to put a curse on the people of Israel, but God stopped him from cursing them and actually made him bless them instead. But in Numbers 25, it reveals that that Balaam was able then to entice the Israelites into sinning against God by eating meat sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality with the Moabite women. Seduce them away. Here Jesus says the Nicolaitans are enticing some people in the Pergamum church the way Balaam enticed the Israelites. There's some in the church that are holding to these teachings, thinking that you can worship God and worship all these other gods at the same time. If the church in Ephesus is strong in doctrine, then the church in Pergamum is weak in it. They'll let anybody in and teach them whatever they want. At least some of them will. The Ephesians hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, but some of the people in the Pergamum church are embracing it. They're holding on to it, Jesus says. They're tolerating the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And Jesus, listen, will not tolerate that kind of toleration in his church. And so he tells these tolerators to repent or to expect the swift sort of judgment from him. Do you know that Jesus jealously guards the purity of his bride? jealously guards the purity of his bride. He protects her with the sword of his mouth by dealing directly with any falsehood that threatens to corrupt her. I don't think it's a coincidence that the apostle Paul wrote about the armor of God in his letter to the Ephesians and called them to take up the sword of the spirit and then equated that to the word of God. Sharp double-edged sword. It's the word of God himself. For those in the Pergamum church whose hearts are pierced with conviction from Jesus' words here and respond then with repentance, he offers them a promise along with anyone else who conquers, that is, who continue to hold on to his name above every other name. He will give them some of the hidden manna and a white stone with a new name inscribed on it that no one knows 
except the one who receives it. For those who refuse to, to eat the meat of idols, so to speak, in other words, those who refuse to tolerate idolatrous ways, they will receive food from God himself that is hidden now but will be revealed at the great wedding feast of the Lamb. And until then, they'll continue to be nourished by Christ himself, who we saw call himself the, the true bread from heaven in John's gospel. In John's day, white stones were used as invitations and an admission ticket to pagan festivals and feasts. For those who conquer by refusing to compromise with idolatry in this world, Jesus promises them a white stone, an invitation, and an admission ticket into the great wedding feast to come. Also in John's day, the court systems, uh, in, the, in those court systems, jurors, jurors voted for a defendant's innocence by setting out a white stone or his guilt by setting out a black stone. For those who conquer, uh, Jesus may also have this meaning in mind, that even though they may be declared guilty by the worldly courts and put to death, even as Antipas was, they will be declared innocent by the court of heaven and be granted eternal life with the Christ whose name they held on to. And the name on the stone is reflective of the new identity, 2 Corinthians 5.17, that they have in him. It's an identity that only those who have been made new in Christ know. It's an identity that the unbelieving world does not know. So what does it look like for us to put our ears on and listen to what the Spirit is saying to this church in Pergamum? Well, if we're going to listen to Christ's words here and obey them, then we have to ask ourselves, is there anything that we are tolerating in our lives that Christ would not tolerate in his church? Are you holding on to any worldly teachings, any cultural philosophies that entice you into mixing idolatrous practices with your worship of God? Do you need to repent from any compromises that you've made? How do we as a church need to use the word of God as a sword to fight against our spiritual enemy, to stand firm so that our Lord doesn't need to use it to fight against us? Let's look at the final church before we end today and then we'll pick up again next week. Thyatira, verses 18 through 29. <clears throat> Write to the angel of the church in Thyatira, thus says the son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first, but I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she doesn't want to, to, to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her into a sick bed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction. Unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I'm not putting any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter, he will shatter them like pottery. Just as I have received this from my father, I also will give him the morning star. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. How does Jesus identify himself to this church? 
as the son of God whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. He's emphasizing his holiness, his purity here, along with his righteousness and his, and his ability to see and judge things as they really are. And that's exactly what he's doing here with the church in Thyatira. He starts off by telling them what he sees that pleases him, right? Their love, which is something that he called out in the church in Ephesus. Their faithfulness, their service, their endurance. They're bearing spiritual fruit in increasing measure. But not everybody in the church is growing in this kind of holiness. Jesus knows the difference. He sees clearly He also tells them what he sees that does not please him. He says, but I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel. Thyatira is in a similar predicament as that of Pergamum. There there, there are some in the church that are being seduced, enticed into idolatrous compromise. In Thyatira, that seduction was coming from this self-proclaimed prophetess whose teachings lined up with those of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Jesus calls her Jezebel here. Maybe that was her real name, maybe not, but either way, it, it, it points back to the Jezebel of the Old Testament. And the book of 1 Kings uh, tells us that she persuaded Israel's king Ahab and the people of Israel to worship false gods, Baal and Asherah, along with worshiping the Lord. In 1 Kings 16, we're told that King Ahab did more to anger the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. I don't want that to be said about me. Do you? I've been reading through the book of Ezekiel and over and over and over again, God, God, uh, through Ezekiel, prophesied judgment against Israel for for going this way, for, for committing spiritual adultery. And he says, then they will know that I am the Lord. I want to know that he's the Lord now. The Lord, like Jesus says, they'll they'll know that I'm the Lord who sees clearly. The Lord who, who, who calls people to repentance, Paul says in, in Romans 2, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. I want to know that aspect of God. Jesus is pointing out some very serious sin that is taking place in the church of Thyatira here. Thyatira was an economic city that housed a variety of trade industries like clothing and leather and pottery and baked goods and bronze works. You know how Jesus said, uh, I'm the one who has feet like fiery bronze? That's pitting their love for him, their faithfulness to him against their, their desire to want to be in, the, in the, the commerce system and compromise. It was primarily run by a number of trade organizations that required their members to participate in idolatrous practices or risk being ostracized for their refusal to do so. You either worship our gods or you, you can't partake in the, in the commerce here. So that put a quite, quite a bit of pressure on the Christians living there, as you can imagine. This prophetess Jezebel is convincing some in the Thyatiran church that it's okay then to go along with the idolatrous requirements of the trade organizations for the sake of being able to do business in the city where they live. You can almost imagine her saying, hey, listen, you need to eat, right? You need food, don't you? Listen, God knows your heart. Your heart's in the right place. It's okay. You can do these things but not mean them. She's persuading them to commit spiritual adultery against Christ. One author that uh, commented that Jesus' eyes like fire, 
in those eyes, we see not just anger against sin, but the jealousy of a lover who has been forsaken and betrayed. In his grace, Jesus gave this Jezebel time to repent of her sin, but she refuses to come to him and instead continues to draw others away from him, to seduce them away from their first love. And so Jesus warns of the imminent judgment that he will bring on her and her followers in verses 22 and 23. The judgment that he's threatening is to, is, uh, to bring is, has a purpose to it. Jesus says, then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines the minds and hearts and I will give to each of you according to your works. Then all, all everybody will know that I'm the Lord, right? The author that I just quoted a moment ago also had this to say. This is so convicting to me. Jesus doesn't just look at us. He looks into us. That's what the word of God does too. Remember, it reads us. This is a sobering thought, is it not? There's no convincing Jesus that our heart is in the right place when it's really not. It doesn't matter what we say or do. We'd be wise to see his threats of judgment as gracious warnings and then heed those warnings. In the end, Jesus will expose our works and respond accordingly. Sometimes he won't even wait till the end. This is how gracious our Lord is to disrupt our own self-deception and expose the things that we've been walking in so that we can repent and turn to him before it's too late. Unless his grace has worked itself into your heart, listen, if you don't turn and repent, then you will be left to face his judgment. He will say to you on that last day or on your last day on this earth, when you close your eyes here and you open them and stand face to face before the judge of all the earth, he will say, I have this against you. And you won't be able to argue otherwise. And all that's left in that moment is judgment. There's no repentance left because he gave you time here. Why not take advantage of that time that you have now and repent Turn from your sin. Trust in him. Only Jesus can make you truly holy and pure. Only Jesus can truly make your heart be in the right place. If you want to be freed from his righteous judgment, then you have to receive his righteousness. He lived a perfect life of obedience to God. That's righteousness. He did what was right, and he died a sacrificial death on the cross, and then he received God's judgment upon himself as a substitute for sinners. He rose then from the dead in order to prove his righteousness and to give eternal life and victory over sin, death, and Satan to all who put their trust in him. So why not repent? Why not do that now? Why not confess your sin and your need for Jesus? Why not put your trust in him? today. And then when you stand before the Lord, he'll say, I don't have anything against you because my son took all of that in your place. While Jezebel is seducing some away from Christ in the Thyatiran church, there's still many who reject her instead of rejecting Jesus. And to those people, Jesus gives no other burden. Can you imagine the relief when they read that part? But instead, he exhorts them to keep persevering, keep enduring to those who conquer, that is, to those who keep Christ's works to the end. They will be judged according to Christ's work in them in the end. And he'll give them the authority to rule the nations with righteous judgment. Jesus quotes from Psalm 2 here 
in verse 27. We went through that psalm together around this time last year during the Advent season. That psalm speaks of the Messianic king as God's son who receives the nations as an inheritance. Here the one who identifies himself to this church as the son of God is promising that those who conquer will rule the nations with him in the righteousness that they have received from him. They'll also be given the morning star, which is Christ himself. Jesus already received authority over the nations from his father when he rose from the dead. He's not waiting till the end for that. That means that he's already ruling right now, and we exercise his authority with him as we proclaim Christ as king and point others to his grace filled gospel. So what does it look like for us to put our ears on in order to listen and obey these authoritative words of the Son of God here? Well, we have to ask, are we willing to lovingly warn and correct one another when we see sin in each other's lives? To point each other to to Christ himself as the judge, but also the one who takes our judgment. To, To invite each other to turn and repent yet again and run back to Jesus? Is there any sin that you're trying to hide from the fiery eyes of Christ? He sees it. Are you tolerating any teaching that contradicts Christ's authority and the authority of his word? Are we as a church committed to keeping Christ's word and his works to the very end? You see, Jesus knows what his church needs in order to conquer And so we should listen to him when he speaks to us, even when what he has to say is hard to hear. And we're not done listening because he's got more to say next week. Not everything that Jesus has to say to these churches is pleasant. But listen, everything that he has to say to these churches is necessary. It's necessary. And he says these things for the good of these churches because if they put their ears on and they listen to what he has to say by taking his words to heart and obeying Jesus, then these churches will realize they're not just striving for for conquering at the end. What does Paul tell us in Romans 8? We are more than conquerors now. They're already conquerors in Christ, and they will endure to the very end. This is what it means to remain in me, like Jesus said in John 15, and my love. He said, those who remain in me will keep my commands. So let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. You got your ears on? Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. So grateful that you love us enough to change us, to confront us in our sins, weaknesses, and failures, but not to leave us there, not to to pile burden on top of us and make us fix our problem ourselves, but to show us yet again that that problem has been resolved in Jesus Christ. Thank you that we have a king who sits on the throne of grace right now. And we thank you that it's by grace alone that we will finish this race. Lord, help us to conquer. Help us to endure. Help us to persevere. Help us to receive the hard words of truth that you have to tell us in love and depend on the spirit and pursue these things of Christ together with your church as we endure to the end. We thank you and pray all these things in Jesus' name, our mighty king. Amen.